Welcome to the REI Mastermind Network, where host Jack Haas gathers amazing stories from leaders in real estate investing. In each episode, our guests will tell you what they're doing that works, what they've tried that failed, and best of all, you'll learn actionable steps to take your real estate investing to the next level. Now, here's Jack with another value-packed episode. We have Mike Gating with me here today, and to learn what him and his team are up to in multifamily investing, head over to norhart.com, and I'll make sure to have that as a clickable link in the show notes. Mike, I really appreciate your time here today. Yeah, thanks for having me. This should be fun. You know, I got to say that going to your website is almost jarring. I'm going to have to just say that because you go to your website and it's very modern in comparison to a lot of other multifamily investing companies I've run into. And it, one thing leads to another, and it seems like you have a different approach to multifamily investing than I would say what is common. Could you talk a little bit to that and what led to this type of branding? Yeah, it is quite a bit different. At our heart, we design, build, and rent apartments. But really, we're focused on solving housing affordability and driving down the cost of multifamily, really. Driving the co- down the cost of uh, apartments and housing for us all. We're already ab- achieving about a 20 to 30% reduction in cost. We believe we can achieve a 50% reduction. But imagine what that means. Someday, your rent could be half. So we think about the world differently. And we realize in order to change what's happened in the past, that we need to invent and create something new. And so part of that innovation, that change, is, is how our website feels. And it helps illustrate some of the key tenets to our organization, things like our culture, the environment, the place that people are in. And what, yes, what led to all of this, when I was young, my parents started our business. It was very small at the time, small multifamily buildings we were building up. In fact, I can remember trips to the local hardware store. We would fill up carts full of materials. And then we would fill my dad's trailer up and we'd head on back to the site and build these little buildings. So that was me growing up. I went off to school for computer science, mathematics, and management. I wanted nothing to do with this family business. And my dad really wanted me to join. Deep down, I think the reason I wanted nothing to do with it is because I don't want people to think it was given to me. Eventually wrestled with my own ego, got past that part joined with my dad. And then within a few years, my dad passed away. And this was a tough, surprising moment in my life. But looking back, there was a magic to it. And that is we could start questioning things. We could start doing things different. I had people telling me that our website was crazy. Real estate companies don't do websites like this. We started doing things way different in the construction space as well. And people thought we were crazy there as well. But that helped lead to innovation in driving down those costs and changing the way that people experience multifamily. Let's let's start with a little of that a 20 to 30% and you believe you can achieve a 50% savings on construction. What are some of the tactics and strategies there that you're implementing to drive down such a, frankly, that's a pretty large number? Absolutely. There, at a high level, there are 10,000 little problems. You got to solve all of them to solve construction costs. But 
really at a very simple level, if you look at other industries like manufacturing, they've improved labor productivity by 760% in the past 60 years. Construction during that time has done nothing. So we're just simply taking the lessons we've learned or people have learned in those other industries and applying it to our own. So one of the first things that we did is pretty simple, but it, construction is a very segmented industry, right? The owner of multifamily is typically different than their developer, which is typically not always different than your general contractor and all of your subs in your supply chain and your manufacturers. Construction were to produce cars. You'd have a different company installing the door, a different company installing the windshield, and a different company installing the wheel. And of course, the wheel company would call you up and say, man, I am so sorry. I got delayed another project. I can't get out there for a week. And when they did come out, you're, you'd be shut down. First off, you're shut down for the week until they come out. And when they did come out, they'd be irate because they could only work on one car at a time. Manufacturing looks at us as if we're crazy, but the reality is this is very normal in the construction world. So we brought all of those trades in-house. And when I say all, I really do mean all. Everything from electricians to plumbers to manufacturing to supply chain to engineers and architects. Then once everything is under one roof, we can start applying some very simple techniques. One technique is the assembly line. In the assembly line revolutionized manufacturing. But when you look at construction, you ask, like, how in the world could you use that here? You can't take a building and drive it down a line. But what you can do is you can take the person and move them through the building. So right now, every five hours, every single team shifts one unit through the building. So if you look at the end of our building, every five hours, another brand new apartment unit is completed. And that one technique takes in a construction process that's 15 months and drives it down to nine months. That's interesting. Is there some other techniques that you've been finding that have been beneficial bringing this in-house? Yeah, there's a lot of techniques. Probably the biggest, one of the biggest ones you have to start thinking about if if you want to do what we're doing is how to create a culture of improvement. And so when I said at the beginning, there are 10,000 problems that we need to solve. There are literally 10,000 problems. To give you an example of how small they can be, one team worked to clean out a pod, right? There's this pod that had their materials in it and their like tools and stuff like that that was just not well organized. There wasn't shadow boards. It was just scattered about. They spent a half a day to clean it up. It only saved them maybe a couple of minutes every day. There's a couple minutes solved every day going forward and for always. So one of the things that we do to inspire those changes is that we do lean videos. So lean is this concept by Toyota that is about how to improve things. And in fact, Toyota invented it and many companies emulate it. And now we partner with Toyota to help bring it in a deeper way into the construction world. But Every team creates a video every single week of some improvement that they made within their team. One of the videos I saw recently was an HVAC team that was installing pipe in the ceiling. And they would bring their ladder over, climb up the ladder, screw it up to the ceiling, and walk down the ladder and slide the ladder over again. One guy was like, dude, what if we just got an extension to our drill and stand on the ground and just screw it up from down below? It's just a lot of simple little things like that that over time they add up. One of the things that really takes me aback is the fact that 
to set up the infrastructure that you're talking about here would have been a significant investment. How did you get your existing company, your family, and existing investors on board that you were going to make such a drastic change? One little bite at a time. I go back to as well that being young and inexperienced as I was when I first really took on things fully myself has a lot of disadvantages because there's lots of mistakes that I've made and lots of skin knees, but it also has its advantages because the ignorance brings a little bit of not understanding how hard it's going to be. And so we would take on new things because we had to in some cases or because we just thought it would be a good idea. And once we got into it, we realized how hard it was. And maybe looking back, given how painful it was, maybe I wouldn't have been more scared than I, sh- than I really was. And so I think that helps a little bit. Another really key aspect is making sure you have the right people. You can't make significant change without the right people. And one of the most important lessons I've ever learned is to hire the very best. And when I say very best, I truly mean that. We'll fly people in from other states to come work here during the week and we fly them home. We look for literally the world experts at things. We had a guy in recently that was a savant at concrete and could make concrete clean itself. We have that partnership with Toyota. I'm in a number of master classes working with some of the world's most elite people and very niche things, improving what we do. But bringing in the best is a thing that changed the game for me. We were struggling, as many do, with just stuff in the business. And we, at one point, ended up letting go most of the team. And I hired, and we really ramped up our hiring efforts to bring in the very, very best people. And that changed the game because they started unlocking doors that I didn't realize could be unlocked. And when you bring a team of that kind of caliber together, taking on new big challenges, it's exciting and fun. We push off of each other. We're pushing each other, trying to be the best in the world at what we do. It kind of goes back. I'm in the middle of reading Who Not How, and there's a lot of this that he talks about a lot of what you're just talking about here. You mentioned originally not really wanting to be into the family business. And it sounds like you initially went through training that would typically not be coincide with real estate investing. First of all, what was some of the training that you went through that you found out surprisingly benefited the new business? Yeah. So I went to school for computer science with a minor in mathematics and management. I nearly got a major in finance and nearly got a minor in accounting. I think the business aspect was really valuable, but I think the most valuable thing was the computer science because we've we've definitely brought a variety of technology into this space that's normally not always here. Or The world of construction tends to be a little bit of, this is the way we've always done it. This is how we're going to do it. This is what my great-granddad did. This is what my grandpa did. This is what my dad did. This is what I'm going to do. The world of technology and computer science and AI and and virtual reality, which I was a researcher in at the time, is very much on the forefront. It's a different kind of mindset. And so I think having that mindset helped a little bit. And then also just the tangible like programming, like we've written software systems and I'm not afraid to get my hands in and get coding with our team. We have a team of software developers that we've actually hired on to work on different technologies within our properties. And we've even got as detailed as designing control boards for certain locks within our, our rental units so that we can better control that experience 
for our residents and smart home tech. And we're in the process of reviewing robotics for manufacturing facilities, for producing components that go into apartments. Our dream someday is to create the gigafactory of apartments. We're a long ways off, but that is a dream of ours someday. So I think that's what helped us from that, from that training. So when you, what is your family thought of this now? You, it sounds like it, from where it started when you took over to where it was before, the transition here had to have been a bit startling for some of your some of your family. What was the feedback you received there? Yeah, with the family, it was just my mom, my dad, my brother, and I. That was the whole family. So my dad passed away. My brother is a Disney Imagineer. He literally gets to work on Star Wars attractions. It's amazing. I'm jealous of his job. So he's been pretty supportive because he's fairly on his own in his independent world. And my mom has always been incredibly supportive. I don't think if, if I didn't have her support, we wouldn't be able to do what we're doing today. I think if my mom were really honest, I think the thing that she regrets to a degree, and she's told me this and said this on podcasts of her own, is that my life growing up was so work-focused with my dad that now in my adult life, like I'm very driven, very involved with work and I enjoy it a lot. And she wishes that I spend more time sitting back with the family, sitting, spending with her that I, I think she regrets pushing us so much when we were younger. It's interesting. I think a lot of parents actually want that. Most parents want a better life than that they, than they had. Yeah, absolutely. So is there anything that you've been trying to do to adapt to that scenario? Sometimes I find that having that type of feedback from family members is a check, if you will, to it, it, for me anyway, it's take, it makes me step back and, and reassess a couple of things. Yeah. The one thing I've really learned is how short life really is, right? My dad died relatively young. We only live about 5,000 weeks here on earth. And one of the questions I ask myself daily is, how do I want to spend the minutes I have here on earth? And for me, one of the really big aspects of that is I want to make some kind of meaningful, positive impact on the world. And I think we can do that through solving housing affordability. The other aspect is I want a really good relationship with my immediate family. And so those are the two big factors I'm thinking a lot about driving well. And when you're trying to make an impact at a world scale, it is a huge demand on your time. And so I just I try not to waste the minute. So even down to like how I eat or how I educate myself, like I try to double things up as much as I can, like exercise and reading books, doing master classes, watching YouTube as I'm drifting off to sleep. Like eating my food while I'm making my food, even my drive time to work is five minutes and I go from heated parking garage to heating parking garage. So I tried to eliminate everything out of my life that isn't driving those two main elements forward so that when I am home or when I am at work, I can give 100%. So when I get home, it's, hey, Clara, right? It's all the energy. I could care less about what's happened at work, how tough it's been. It's all into my kids and how I can support them. And one really fun side thing that I didn't expect that has been really powerful for my kids and myself is my daughter, my, the daughters are three and five and my older daughter wanted to start a YouTube channel. And a month or two ago, we started it and now it's become, kind of become our thing. And so we, it's something fun that her and I can do together. We create the channel, we put it up, we kind of work on it together. 
been interesting. I don't know. It, yeah. So it's, it's really hard to balance in some, and I'm not perfect at it, but I try to work on it every day. Sure. Just to remind everybody, head over to norhart.com and uh, check out what Mike and his team are doing. And if you found some value in today's recording so far, do us a quick favor and share it with one of your investor friends. And I believe, Mike, you have a podcast that's about to be released. We do. It's not long. It's called Becoming a Unicorn. It's about the journey of small businesses growing to billion-dollar enterprises and looking at what that journey is really, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and trying to get a real sense for what that experience is like. So since you brought that up, what has been the ugly side of what you've experienced so far through, through your growth? Yeah. So we talked about hiring the best, but the flip side of that coin means that you have to get rid of the people that aren't the best. And so when we talk about employees, we talk about the spectrum of bad to great. And most companies know they need to get rid of the bad ones. Most companies want to keep the great ones. But the difference is that we don't want the average. And so we have something in our company called the keeper test. We stole it from Netflix. The idea is that if we're not enthusiastic about you, that you're not going to stick around long term. One of the negative sides of that is then people at times can feel like they're walking on pins and needles, right? Am I good enough? And the challenge there is that none of us are good enough when we start something off, right? We're all terrible initially at what we do. And so we try to mitigate some of that by having meaningful conversations with your boss where you're at and also recognizing that you don't need to be best in the world today. You just need to be on a journey to become best in the world at what you do. I also have plenty of horror stories and painful points that we've gone through in our state, but that's the first that came to mind. One of those things that's interesting, you bring that up because I have found that in in the end, it, you're probably not even doing that employee any kind of favors, keeping and holding on to that, to that dream, if you will. They are likely going to be that best person in a different scenario. Exactly. And I've got many stories of us. Our dream is that we fire someone, but we actually help find them a job. We get them well supported. We have people who come back to us later and thank us for firing them. Because the reality is they weren't brave enough to step out into where they needed to best fit. And when they were here, they weren't the right fit for the organization. If we can find them that right fit. They're actually happier. A lot of the things that you were talking about, you, you talked about the 20 to 30% reduction in construction costs, but hiring these people, investing in these technologies, there's an additional expense there. Is that where, are you finding the 20, the 30% savings in construction is offsetting the investments you're making in different aspects? Or how does that end up in the grand math there? Yeah, we are actually in total 20 to 30% less today. That's actually what we're achieving with everything in mind. You know what people often think, and I used to think this too, hiring the best people is expensive. And it is, if you look at it on a per person basis. One of our philosophies is we'll pay top of market, and we never want payer benefits to be the reason why you leave. Now, the thing that most people don't realize is that the best people outperform the average by two to five to 10 times as much. And I have seen it over and over again. And so instead, if you look at people based upon what they produce, the most talented people 
are actually the least expensive. And that's the thing that blew my mind once I understood it. And then once you have a team like that, the caliber of people together working together, they synergize and they produce far more than what you ever thought possible. That's interesting, especially knowing that it goes back to that book I'm reading. It just happens to be reading at this time. He makes the same exact, nearly the same point. And I think this is a mindset shift. I think a lot of people see things as an expense instead of an investment. And I frankly, I'm going to be the first one to admit I'm terrible at this is to see certain things as an investment versus an expense. Yeah, absolutely. Another thing that's just helped us is I think a lot of people in real estate, nothing wrong with this, but are either trying to create some kind of lifestyle for themselves or just trying to maximize profit. And I totally get that. I totally support it. And when you start doing that, you start maybe making decisions that kind of optimize with the way you profit in the moment. This is not how we think about things. I, I think about things as, again, life is short and I want to make a positive impact in the world. So from, when you're looking at it from that perspective, that just makes some of these normally harder decisions easier to do, like hiring expensive people. If I'd rather try to change the world in a positive way and fail. So with that, it sounds like you have different values that a lot of investors might not have heard of up until now. The way you position things, especially we referred to the marketing. How has that been going regarding communicating this, regarding the stark uh, differences between the other investment firms? For the people who get it, we're different, right? But for the people who get it, they really get it and they're very excited about it. For others who don't, and that's by all means, they're just not my people, right? They're, we're not going to connect up very well together. It's totally okay. There's plenty of places to connect up separately. What I will say, and I probably haven't mentioned this yet, is that today we actually don't have investors. And the reason is we've been able to generate all of our growth through the income we make on properties. Remember, we're 20 to 30% less. So we have a hundred, let's say we have a hundred million dollar building. Our costs might be $70 million, but our bank loan might be 75. And so we can actually generate cash with each building traditionally. Although we are looking to accelerate our growth. And so we're, we are launching a new investment platform soon. But, but yeah. Take a second and talk about the, the platform because this is going to be a bit different from traditional platforms as well. Yeah, I, it is a little bit unique. We're offering, a, it's an it's a online platform that you can put money into an account, you earn an interest rate, and you can take money out of that account as you so choose. You can also lock up your money for certain periods of time, like six to 24 months and earn a higher interest rate. And so the rate of return, the interest rates are known. They're on our website. They're quite good. And it's a simpler kind of investment. A couple of the things we had thought about, one of the things I don't like about most real estate investment is that not all, but a lot of it is only for accredited investors, right? And so that's people who make more than $200,000 a year, a million dollars in net assets, excluding your home. But we wanted something that everyone could have access to. And so we've gone down the reg A approach or the mini IPO approach, which is quite expensive and a lot of time, but we're launching this platform that's open to anyone. And in some sense, we're actually working to replace the bank. And with that, you as the investor get the interest rate, but also the bank's profits. So 
like our website, like our approach to life, our investment approach is a little bit different as well. But we do that intentionally because we're trying to change up the way we think about things. So what's been your biggest lesson you've learned now launching this platform and essentially a syndication? I think one of the earlier lessons that I learned that was really valuable was pitch investors before you build the platform. (laughs) Start having conversations with people so that you can learn whether or not your ideas are good ones or not, as opposed to going all the way down this journey and then finding out, shoot, this isn't something actually people want. Another interesting one, if you're interested in the Reg A space, it is quite challenging. It is almost the full extent of a full IPO, but I've actually really enjoyed it. I've spent many weekends now just reading lots of legal docs and editing and changing and working with the team and going through the, the audit process as well has been really interesting. And looking back now, I've actually appreciated it because I feel like it's made us a better company. And anytime someone pushes me to be better, that's something I love. So could we go back to talking a little bit about the units you're developing? You were talking about trying to hit that affordable living section. Looking through your website, these places look, frankly, amazing. They look really nice. And I, I guess I don't have a gauge as to what is affordable living down in the Twin Cities, the Minneapolis-St. Paul area. Are you priced currently priced lower than your competition in those same neighborhoods? That's a fantastic question. And maybe to put the question a little bit more pointedly is, Mike, your rents are about the same as everyone else. What the heck are you doing? That is true. And that's intentional. But why? See, if we were to lower our rents by 20 or 30% today, which we could, we solve housing affordability for a few thousand people. That's not our goal. Our goal is to solve it nationwide. So what we're doing is we're taking those profits and we're putting it into building the system that builds apartments. Imagine someday like Tesla's Gigafactory having a Norhart Gigafactory for apartments. Elon Musk talks about how it's hard to produce a car, but it is 10 to 100 to 1,000 times harder to build the system that builds cars. And that's what we're working toward. Our engineers and architects and team don't think about just building an individual building. They're building the systems that build those buildings. And our dream is that over the course of the next 10 years to reach a point of producing 60,000 units per year with 192,000 units under management, And in that stage, we start having an impact on the supply of housing. If you produce enough supply of something, what happens? The prices start to come down. But here's the trick, not just for our own residents. It's for everyone nationwide. And that's our dream of how we actually hope to solve housing affordability. So with this premise, then, are you planning on trying to hit a certain level of volume in the in Minnesota, for example, to prove this out a little bit, or are you going full on as towards your grand dream and goal? Yeah, we're producing close to 500 units a year right now in Minnesota. We're hoping to expand that to one to 2,000. At that stage, we are a very substantial amount of the multifamily supply here in the state. And we're actively now working to expand into Texas because there's just a lot more room for growth there. And we are also expanding our manufacturing facilities to Mexico, as well as we have manufacturing in Wisconsin. And so yeah, we're working toward the grand vision overall, which is what we're doing. Sure. Okay. 
just a remind everybody one more time, norhart.com. And I'll make sure that is a clickable link in the show notes. But Mike, this has been a very interesting question. The interesting episode. You have a very different approach. And like I said, you go to your website and it looks very different from any other multifamily investing company I've seen up till now. In fact, it almost looks like a, I, I don't think I've seen a site with so many emojis. <laughs> yeah, it's a different experience, but if it's meant to feel more modern, more like crypto than real estate. So with that, if you're open to it, we'll we'll close out this episode with some of the rapid fire questions. Yeah, sounds great. So here's your chance to bust a real estate investing myth. What have you learned over your time that you'd like to uh, say that's actually not the case? People would probably disagree with me on this one, but at least from my experience, I don't know if there is really anything. I don't think you truly can get passive real estate income. Like you can have, you have to, if you're the one managing it, you have to get out there, deal with the toilets. You got to deal with the problems. This is a job. It is work, especially if you want to take it to another level. Yeah, that actually goes back to why I originally, I asked that question because when I was a kid, late night programming, it's just mailbox money. It's just easy, get into it, no money down. That type of thing. So, yeah, I agree. So do you have a book recommendation or what are you reading right now? No Rules by Reed Hastings is probably the top book I've ever read. It talks about some of these principles of hiring the best and how to build culture. The book I'm reading now is Multipliers. It's about how to improve the capacity of your whole team. And it's probably going to also be one of my top favorite books ever. Sure. What is your biggest real estate investing mistake and what did you learn from it? Early on, after my dad passed away, we worked to get a project complete and we, I got shut down twice by the city. And one of the things I, the reason I was getting shut down partly is I didn't understand the importance of the relationship. I was very much of the mindset of, I'm going to push this through. I'm legally right to do this. And what I had learned through it is no. The human aspect is so much more important than the letter of the law. If you could go back in time and give your younger self one piece of advice, what would that be? Hire the best people. Unquestionably. I wasted six, seven, eight years where I could have, we could be so much further along today if I had hired the top team originally. You know, and this is beside the point, but it just struck me as something that at my age, I'm just finally learning this too, Mm. is buying the best tools, buying the best, just getting one and done. Because I've had a tendency of going and getting something because it was cheap. And then even weeks later, having to go buy another one because such and such, it just perpetuates everything throughout life. I could have bought one thing, been done with it and moved on versus dealing with something over and over again. Exactly. So In under 60 seconds, could you give everybody one piece of advice that they can implement in their business today? So hiring the best people, we've talked about that. That's easily the most important one. Bring on the right support staff to make sure you do that well. Hire the right people. Maybe a secondary one is realize that whenever we try something new, we're terrible at it. And that terrifies us, right? But the reality is you need to step in and try and just get in the weeds. So I'm sure there might be something you've been thinking about in your own business that you're like, I should move this direction. I should go this way, but I've been slow to do it. My challenge to you is to take 
the step. This isn't in the rapid fire questions, Mike, but I'm meaning to ask in you, the way you just said that just now just reminded me of this is that there seems to be a mindset and a level of, I'm not going to say urgency, but a level of commitment that you have that seems to your communicate down to your team regarding this as well. How do you maintain this level, like this mindset, this always advancement for betterment, not only in yourself and your team, and keeping that on the forefront of what your core values are? Yeah, for me, honestly, when I say this, like, keeps coming back to this, is how I, I do really firmly understand how short life really is. And for me, I just don't want to waste that time. And so I look at the minutes, right? I'm counting down. To, I know I have a death date and I want to make sure I'm using my life to make the biggest positive impact. And when you have that perspective, you just realize that you just don't have time here on earth to waste your time skirting around issues and not pushing things forward, right? And not having the energy to try to solve things. And so if I get to the end of my life and I don't feel if I feel like I didn't do everything I can to make that kind of impact, I know I'm going to be crushed by that. And that motivates me and drives me to move forward. Yeah, it, it's one of those things. I've, I've brought this up in the podcast before. And so maybe I'm going to sound like I'm getting on my soapbox again. But we as human beings have a tendency of responding to pain. And then because of it, then we are always in a reactionary state. And it isn't until you go through the work that Mike has obviously done here to paint that picture and establish those goals and understand your target. And until your why becomes bigger than your pain, you're never going to be out of that reactionary cycle that most people are in. So good. and so true. So is there a question or concept you wished we would have covered here today, Mike? I think one really valuable thing in any business is being mindful of culture. And we spend a lot of time, energy in, in building that right culture. Because if you get the right people and create the right space for them to do well, that's when you can change the game. But if you don't have the right people and you don't build the right culture, then uh, you won't. And culture doesn't happen to you. It's an intentional thing that you have to build. And so there's a lot of techniques and things that maybe in a future podcast we can cover. You know, now you, you just spurred another thought. And, and I never, I ne until now, I've never thought of this. We've always, we all hear that you need to surround yourself by the five people you want to have. Those five that you hang out with the most kind of represent who you are. Mm -hmm. As a business owner, it, we probably should consider us as that, we spend so much time at work surrounding individuals within our business with the five, with those, we're essentially hiring those five people and surrounding our employees with those five people. So it does make sense to increase productivity, increase your business to hire the best. Does that make God. sense? Or am I kind of circular in logic here? No, that's a great argument. You often hear the quote that, tell me the five people you hang out the most with, and that will be your biggest success determiner. But you're right. Honestly, that's even more important for the people you hire. They're going to impact your life way more than the relationships you have outside of that work. And so getting the people on your team that are that level or even better is so important. And that's the way I've lived life. 
I appreciate your time, Mike. You've made me consider a couple things I hadn't before. So with that, I'm going to point everybody one more time to norhart.com. That's N-O-R-H-A-R-T.com. And I'll make sure to have that as a clickable link in the show notes. But really appreciate your time, Mike. I hope you'll come back again sometime. Yeah, thanks for having me. This is a ton of fun. Have you learned at least one actionable step to incorporate into your real estate investing? If so, please consider returning some of that value by leaving a positive review, subscribing to our YouTube channel, or joining our growing network on Facebook and Twitter. You can find links to all of our social media accounts in the show notes. See you next time.